When Jackie Robinson came to Major League Baseball, every single player was white. The United States, a deeply divided nation, was a place where white people and people of color went to different schools and used separate bathrooms. Many restaurants and businesses refused to serve people of color. Hatred, prejudice, and violence was spread all over our nation, especially in the South. Racism wasn't just experienced behind closed doors. It was practiced publicly. Racial segregation carried a deep history in professional baseball, as black players could only play in their own professional Negro leagues as far back as the 1880s. The amount of talent in these Negro leagues could not be ignored, and a young phenom named Jackie Robinson became the first person of color to sign a contract at Major League Baseball with the Brooklyn Dodgers. During an interview, Dodgers general manager and president, Branch Rickey, asked Robinson if he was capable of handling all the hate he would inevitably receive as the only black player in an all-white league. When Robinson asked Rickey if he was looking for a player who would just take the abuse and without fighting back, Rickey replied, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. Ricky was looking for an individual who was both a great athlete and a gentleman. A person with the inner strength and self-restraint who could withstand intense hostility and aggression without being reactive, and he found it in Robinson. After leading the International League in batting average and runs with Brooklyn's minor league team, Robinson made his major league debut for Brooklyn on April 15, 1947. His reception was bittersweet. Some of the Dodgers players signed a petition saying they wouldn't play with Robinson because he was black. Nevertheless, Robinson pressed on. Daily insults, ridicule, and some of the most hateful threats a person will ever hear from both fans and players shook Robinson. He received letters constantly with death threats to him and his family. When the team traveled, Jackie had to stay in separate hotels and eat at separate restaurants. When he ran onto the field or was up to bat, he heard boos and jeers and had little to no support from his own team. His statistics quieted his critics as he became one of the most elite players in Major League Baseball. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1947, the most valuable player two years later. He made the All-Star team six times and led the Dodgers to a World Series championship in his short 10-year career in the Major Leagues. Today, because of people like Jackie Robinson, Athletes are recruited by their abilities and not by the color of their skin. His most important accomplishment, however, is that he broke baseball's color barrier, opening doors for people of all colors and races to compete together. Although the United States still has a long way to go with regards to race inequality, it is the courage and character of people like Jackie that create opportunities for everyone. To say that Jackie Robinson was an underdog would be an understatement, wouldn't it? He, uh, he, he dealt with unbelievable obstacles against him, and yet he came out stronger for it. Today, we're going to look at another person in the Bible who overcame unbelievable odds against him as well. It's probably a person in the Bible that you're not very familiar with. His name is Jeremiah, and there's two books that Jeremiah wrote. One was the book of Jeremiah, and one was the book of Lamentations, probably a couple of books you probably haven't studied a whole lot about, so let me give you a little background to who Jeremiah was. Uh, Jeremiah comes on the scene when Israel has been divided into two different nations. You have Israel and you have Judah. 
And uh, Jeremiah is a prophet to the, to the uh, people of Judah at this time. Israel has already been defeated years earlier by the Assyrians. And once again, the people of God have turned their backs on God. And God is looking for a spokesperson to wake them up. Uh, because Babylonians are coming, and God is going to use the Babylonians to bring discipline upon the people of Judah. And Jeremiah's job is to warn them of the impending danger that's coming in their direction, for them to repent of their sin, because there's still time for that direction of where they're heading to go a different way. And so Jeremiah comes on the scene, and, and, these, and, and the, the Babylonians, this is where King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes over eventually because the people don't listen to what Jeremiah Jeremiah has to say, this is where we get the stories of Daniel. This is where we get the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is where we get later in the exile period to the Babylonians. This is where we get the story of Esther as well. Jeremiah is right before the exile takes place. So God comes to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 says, listen, I've set you aside. I've got you appointed for this task, and it's not going to be an easy task. No one's going to listen to you. No one's going to care about a single word. I mean, I want you to look at the pep talk that God gives Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, you will be my spokesperson. Uh, you're going to be the one that tells everyone that judgment is coming. He says, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, does this sound like it's going to be an easy assignment? I mean, the Lord comes to him and says, listen, I'll make you a fortified city. That's not good when you're a fortified city, because when you're a fortified city, somebody wants to take your walls down. He said, I'm going to make you a fortified city. I'm going to make you an iron pillar. I'm going to put a bronze wall all around you. Your job is to say what I want you to say. He says, Jeremiah, this is going to be a fight. This is going to be a battle. Now, how many of us would really take this on? Have you, have you ever been in a fight? I hope you've never been in a fight, but if you've ever been in a fight or if you've ever watched a fight, generally speaking, both people walk away with some wounds, don't they? Both people can show after the fight is over that you can't really tell who the winner or the loser was because both of them are pretty good and beat up. So God's saying to Jeremiah, it's going to be a fight. You're going to take some wounds. You're going to have some scars. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. Jeremiah, have I picked the right person or not? And Jeremiah says, here I am. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. Whatever you want me to say, that's what I'll say. And if you ever read the book of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah chapter 2 to Jeremiah chapter 19, that's exactly what Jeremiah does. He goes all over the countryside and he tells the people, repent. God is going to use the Babylonians as discipline against us because of all of our disobedience. But there's still time. There's still time to go another way. If we'll repent of our sin, God will heal our land. He'll turn the Babylonians away from us. Repent. But nobody would listen. They told Jeremiah to shut up. We said, we don't need God. We don't have a problem. So why don't you just get lost? Jeremiah's frustrated. He's down. He's discouraged about the whole thing. So he goes to God and says, listen, I've, I've been faithful. I've said what you want me to say. I've done what you want me to do. And God says, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. 
So Jeremiah, he walks down to the potter's house and he's like, okay, Lord, here I am at the potter's house. What, what do you want me to do here at the potter's house? Now, you know, a potter's house got, a, got one of these wheels and they are making a little clay jar. You know how the potter does? I don't have one of those. Think of the movie Ghost. That's an iconic scene right there, right? Going around and around and around. You kind of do your, your hands and you, the pot gets nicer. And, I, mean, I don't have any of that right here, but I got this clay, okay? So, uh, and as the potter's working on the clay, God says, just observe what's going on with the potter. So he's working on the, on the, on the pot, and it, and it fails. It starts to go off to one side. It goes off to one direction. And so what's the potter do? He takes the clay, and he smashes it down, and he begins to start all over again. And God says, okay, Jeremiah, you, you go and tell the people what you just saw, because that's exactly what I'm going to do to them if they don't repent. So Jeremiah stands up and says, did you see what the potter did? And you see how he's smashing down the clay? He's starting all over again. If you don't repent of your sins, God's going to do that to you. Well, guess what? People didn't like that message. It didn't make his best of for that particular year. Can you imagine that? Didn't make the best of. And people got so mad and so frustrated with Jeremiah because God was going to start all over again. God was going to smash them that they said, you know what? Jeremiah needs to go. We need to shut that loud mouth up. We need to shut him up right here and now. Well, Jeremiah doesn't know that everybody's plotting to kill him. And so God leads him over to the marketplace, tells him to buy a jar. So he buys this big vase. He buys a big jar. And Jeremiah's like, well, what do you want me to do with it? And God said, I want you to pick it up and I want you to smash it. And I want you to gather as many people around you so you smash this thing right in front of them. So he picks up the jar and he He tosses it. This was expensive. We're not going to do that with this, okay? He smashes it into thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces. And he turns to the people and says, this is what God's going to do to you. If you don't repent of your sin, if you don't turn to the Lord, there's still time. But time is running out. You need to repent. People didn't like that message either. They didn't like messages of things getting smashed and things getting broken into thousands and thousands of pieces. In fact, they were so upset about it that one of the guys has Jeremiah thrown in stocks. Look look at what happens here. Chapter 20. It says, When the priest, Pasur, son of Amur... I'm sure I just butchered those two names. The chief officer in the temple of the Lord heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. So they beat him for saying what he was saying. And they put him in stocks, you know, with his hands through and his neck through. And they put him right by the city gate where people were coming and going and coming and going. And everybody coming and going was making fun of him. Everybody coming and going thought he was a big joke. Everybody was taking a shot at him. Everybody was spitting on him. Everybody was punching him, slapping him around, telling him to shut his mouth. They were tired of hearing the things that he had to say. Now, now if you're Jeremiah at this point, all you've done is exactly what God's asked you to do. From one chapter, the next chapter, the next chapter, for 19 chapters, all you've done has been God's spokesperson and not a single person has listened to you. And you remember that God gave you a pep talk back in chapter one. He said, I'm gonna make you a fortified city. I'm gonna put a bronze wall around you. And Jeremiah's gotta be thinking as he stand there in these stocks, like where is this fortified city? I mean, why am I in the stocks right now? Why have I been beaten? I thought, God, you were gonna protect me. I thought, God, you were gonna rescue me. You ever been given a difficult assignment? 
You were the person who came to your boss and said, listen, I can't do these things. I'm going to be an ethical person. And you thought you'd be rewarded, even promoted for it. And you were the one that was fired. You're the Christian kid that seems to care about what everybody else is doing and what everybody else is feeling. And so you're the ones that sit with the kids who no one else sits with. And you care about kids that nobody else cares about. And because of your faith in Christ, you're laughed at. You're made fun of. People say things about you behind your back. You have a friend of yours who's really blowing it. I mean, they're messing their life up. They're a Christian, and they're just messing up. And you're like, I, I got to go to them. I got to talk to them. I got to win them over. So you go to them privately and say, listen, this is not the plan that God has for your life. God has something greater for you. And I want to help you any way I can to help you get back on the road that God wants you to be on. And they look at you and they say, I want you to go to hell. I don't ever want to talk to you. I don't ever want to see you again. You, you want to be faithful to your family who doesn't know Christ. You want to be faithful to your coworkers and your friends who don't know Christ. And so you pray for their salvation all the time. And you're always sensitive. You're always careful not to move ahead of the Holy Spirit. You're always waiting for the Holy Spirit to give you that opening where the conversation turns to spiritual things. You're not trying to move ahead. You're not trying to shove Jesus down somebody's throat. And so you think, I got an opportunity to talk to a loved one. So you talk to a loved one about Jesus. And you get done, and they say, I don't ever want to hear that from your mouth ever again. I'm fine. I'm a good person. Jeremiah's in stocks. He's like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm standing up for you. Why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Anybody relate to a difficult assignment? Because maybe you got the test result that you know, nobody wants to get. Maybe your job is the one that got laid off because of the pandemic. Maybe you're the one where your restaurant is getting ready to close. And you're like, hey, God, I thought it was going to be a fortified city. I thought there was going to be a bronze wall army. I, I don't get this. Friends, there's just some answers we're not going to get on this side of eternity. And so what do we have to do when we don't have the answers? We don't know the whys to the difficult things that happen to us. We don't know. What do we do in the midst of that? We do the same thing that Jeremiah does. He got out of those stocks. He got back up and he kept being faithful. He kept doing the things that God had called him to do. So Jeremiah chapter 20 comes rolling around. He continues to proclaim the message of of what God wants him to say. And then somewhere around chapter 31, 32, right in that area, maybe 28, 29, Jeremiah's message begins to change. He says, you're too late. Oh, you can beat me, you can throw me down, you can throw, put stocks on my hands and my, my feet and my, my neck, you can do all that to me, but oh man, you're, it's too late. The Babylonians are coming. Your window of opportunity is now shut. And so my advice to everyone here in Judah is don't try to defeat them. Don't try to come against them because God's going to use them to wipe you from the face of the earth. But if you'll surrender to them, he might save some of you. And guess what? Nobody liked that message either. That one didn't make his best of either. And they got so mad at him, they threw him down the dungeon. Guess what Jeremiah did? He got back up again. Somehow he got out of that dungeon. And he goes and he proclaims again the message of God. And guess what? Nobody wants to hear it. And so this time they throw him down into a cistern, down into an old abandoned well. And the Bible tells us that the the cistern was full of mud. And so he's got mud up to his waist. He's kind of stuck in this mud. They threw him down there. This is a place where there's leeches and where there's bugs and where they throw animal carcasses down. They hate Jeremiah so much. They don't want to kill him fast. They want to kill him slow. They want him to slowly starve to death. 
And what's Jeremiah do while he's in the cistern? While everybody's walking above the street and he's down below, he says, it's too late. You missed your window. He won't quit. Later that night, his friends came and they got a rope and they pulled him out. You would think he'd go into hiding at this point. His parents have tried to kill him. His friends have tried to kill him. Everybody has tried to kill him. He won't stop. And even though it doesn't make any sense, and even though his whole world's falling down around him, and even though he has a single answer to any of the questions that he's got, he just keeps showing up. He keeps being faithful to what God has called him to do in this day and in this time. And wouldn't you love to have the perseverance of this guy? That no matter what came your way, that you were going to be faithful to what God had called you to do, no matter how many scrapes, no matter how many scars, no matter how many disappointments, that you would just keep getting back up again. My goodness, so many people lack perseverance. And we felt it during this pandemic, haven't we? We've had moments of great weakness, moments when we want to throw in the towel, moments when we say, I just don't want to, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want things to go back to normal. I give up. I quit. And you find yourself starting to spiral down that dark abyss called depression. Unfortunately, in America, we quit way too early. We're so consumed with comfort. And when something's not comfortable, we get upset about it because it's all about comfort. There was, this, there was this little girl. She was going off to school, and mom had just sent her to go to the, get on the bus. About five minutes had gone by, and all of a sudden, the mom heard a knock on the door. So she went to the door, and she opened up, and there was her little girl. She said, what are you doing here? You should get on the bus. She said, I'm not going to school today. It's a waste of time. She said, what? She said, it's hard, it's long, and it's boring. The mom looked at her daughter and said, you've just described life. Now go get on the bus. <laughs> How many times have you quit in something? Job got too hard, got too difficult. I'm out of here, man. I'm not doing this. I'm not dealing with this anymore. It's too difficult. I'm out. I wonder how many of us over time have signed up for a ministry or two, you know, and said, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to give God an hour of my week. And you got in that ministry and you realize, well, they really expect me to show up. They expect me to do certain things. This is harder than I thought it was going to be. And you quit. How many relationships have you given up on? Marriage didn't turn out the way you thought that it should because you're more consumed with your needs than you are about the needs of your spouse, and they're the same way as you, two self-centered people being sinful towards each other, and the divide just gets greater and greater and greater. No one ever calls a timeout. No one ever says, you know what, this isn't God's plan for marriage. Maybe we need to go see a marriage counselor. Maybe we need to do some hard work. Maybe we need to get on our knees and, and pray to God to help us. Maybe we need to open up that thing we call the Bible, which is the Word of God, and maybe we need to read it, and maybe we need to apply it to our lives. Maybe we shouldn't just throw this relationship away. Oh, no, at 54%, we throw them away. We give up. And we quit. You know what I like to be said of me? There was no quit in him. Knock him down, he just got back up again. He wouldn't stop. He was relentless. 
whatever God called him to do, he persevered. He would not give up. You know, I'm a big fan of the Rocky movies. Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, awesome. Rocky 5, don't waste your time. Rocky 6, phenomenal. Rocky 6, Rocky, I'm going to be a spoiler alert, okay? Rocky 6, he's getting older, and he's long since retired. And he gets an opportunity to do an exhibition fight against the heavyweight champion of the world. And everybody wants to see Rocky back in the ring in his old age. And Rocky kind of wants to do it. He says, he's still got some stuff inside me. He needs to get out. Well, Adrian's already passed away. And so it's just him and his son. And his son's kind of a wuss, to be honest with you. Kind of a wimp, kind of a quitter, kind of a crybaby. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just want to punch the kid. That's what you want to do. You're like, Rocky, punch your son. That's what you're thinking. I'm just kidding around. I'm not, I was thinking that, but I wouldn't want him to do it, okay? Now I'm going to get emails. I was just joking. That's all I was doing as a joke. Goes to the restaurant. The kid does that Rocky owns. And he says, Dad, you shouldn't fight. I don't want you to fight. You're going to make a fool of yourself. And if you make a fool of yourself, you're going to make a fool of me. And Rocky said, I'm not going to quit. I, I, this is what I need to do, and I'm, and I'm going to do it. And the son walks out of the restaurant. He's all upset. He's all mad. Rocky follows him outside. And in that movie, I can't show it to you right now, but in that movie, he gives him, his son, the greatest pep talk that's, in my opinion, ever been given in all of Hollywood's history. This is what Rocky said to his son. He said, let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you're hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or because of her or because of anybody. Cowards do that, and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens, you're my son, you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. Life is hard and life is difficult, and you've got to get back up again. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and you've got to run the race that he set before you, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on him, and he'll see you through it. Now you're saying, this Jeremiah, he's, he's unlike anybody I've ever met in my entire life. This guy's crazy. I mean, there's just no quit in him. He doesn't let discouragement, he doesn't let depression get the best of him. Well, that's not altogether true. Remember I told you he wrote two books? One was the book of Jeremiah and one was the book of Lamentations. Yeah, if you're depressed, don't stay away from that book, okay? Because he just kind of crybabies the whole way through that book. Oh, this isn't right and this isn't fair. And he's doing it right here in Lamentations chapter 3. And you can understand why. His whole world is falling apart around him. And then what happened last March? Your whole world fell down around you. And what the new norm is, you don't like any of it. Neither do I. 
And you're wondering, is there ever going to be a new day? Is it ever going to go back to the way that it was? And you find yourself spiraling. At times you find yourself wondering, where's God in the midst of all this? Why doesn't God do more to intervene? Why doesn't he remove this virus? And you find yourself getting in this dark pit, and you just kind of spiral, and you get more and more depressed, and you're... That's what's happened to Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3. He decides to blame God. Kind of a human thing to do, isn't it? I just blame God for my lot in life. A lot of people do that. That's what he starts to do. Verse 4, he says, God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. His body ached. His heart was sick. His faith at this time was small. He was sick and tired of being sick and tired. He said, God has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He felt trapped. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hoonstones. He has made my paths crooked. Jeremiah could tell you the height of the waves that were crashing on him and the speed of the wind. He's spiraling. He's going to a very dark and depressed place. Friends, what do we do when we find ourselves in the same mess? When you open up your app and you read the news once again or you flip on the news and it's just one more terrible story after another terrible story after another terrible story and you just want to give up you just want to quit you just want to throw in the towel you just want to say forget about it what should you do you take that thought captive and you make it obedient to Jesus Christ you ask yourself, is this something that he wants me to focus on? Is this something he wants me to think about? Is there anything redeeming about this thought? Because what Paul writes, you know, in, in Philippians, he says, think about things that are excellent and true and praiseworthy and lovely. Think about things that are excellent. Is this thought that? So you take that thought captive and you say, you know what? That's stinking thinking from the very Satan himself. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to listen to that anymore. I'm going to redirect my attention. And that's what Jeremiah does in the next verse. He says, but this I call to mind. What's he doing? He's taking that thought and making it obedient. But this I call to mind. What's he call to mind? He says, I have hope because I call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. But this I call to mind. He gets his focus off of the storm and he gets his focus on the creator of the ends of the universe. And he says, I know your love will never fail. And I know your mercies, they're new every morning. And I know that you're faithful. And that you won't let me down. And that whatever you brought me to, you will get me through. And here's what's interesting. The storm didn't cease. His discouragement did. 
uh, meeting the other day with the worship team. We put these services together for the weekends, and I do a little devotional before we get into what we're going to be talking about for that particular service. And I've been reading my Bible with Cami, and we were looking at Philippians 4, and it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Doesn't it say rejoice in your paycheck? Doesn't say rejoice in your good looks? Because we all know that's going away. Doesn't say rejoice in the situation of the world? It says I will rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I say rejoice. I won't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, I will offer my request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Do you understand why I tell you to memorize Scripture? Because you need it now more than you've ever needed it before. Let me tell you something, friends. This is not my home. This is not my home. This sin-soaked, virus-infected place, this dung heap that we live in, this is not my home. I'm just passing through. I have a home waiting for me in heaven where there is no more sickness and there is no more death. There is no more suffering. There's no more COVID-19, 20, 21, 22, 23. This is not my home. So I don't put my hope here. I don't put my hope here. Listen, if you find yourself in over your head, and I think that's just about every single one of us, you need to focus on the Lord. His love never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then the second thing is this. You need to stop being a wuss. And I mean that in the nicest way. I tell my kids all the time, don't be a wuss. Don't send me emails about that either, okay? Did, did you, did, where did you ever get the idea that this was going to be easy? That things were going to work out the way you wanted them to, that everything was going to be fair and fine, and that God wouldn't put you in difficult places to test your faith. If you read the Bible, that's all he ever does. He tests us. He gives us difficult assignments. Hey, Noah, you, you get an ark. Uh, Moses, you get to lead the children of Israel out of captivity. Uh, Joseph, you get sold by your brothers, and then you'll get accused of a crime that you never committed, and you get to end up in prison, and 13 years will go by by the time you had the dream to the time the dream is a reality. That's what you get. A Gideon, you get to whittle down an army so small that there's only one way that it, you, know, you can win, and, and that's through me. Joshua, you get to head into the promised land, lead the children of Israel in there, and there's seven enemy nations, all bigger and better and stronger than you. You get to take them on one at a time. But don't worry, the battle belongs to the Lord. David, you get Goliath. Daniel, you get the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you get the fiery furnace. And Jeremiah, you get the snot knocked out of you every single day of your life. They all said, okay. They had moments of doubt. They had moments of darkness. But they wouldn't quit. They wouldn't stop. Why? Because life's not about us. And life's not about making our name great. It's about making his name great. 
It's about him using us any way that he wants to use us. In the good, the bad, and the ugly. Any way, anyhow, anything he wants. That's what we want. That's what it means to persevere. That's what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. I was reading this past week about some missionaries in the 20th century. They were called one-way missionaries. Have you ever heard of this? One-way missionaries, where they would go to the hardest places in the world to share the message of Jesus Christ. They were called one-way missionaries because they knew they'd never return. They packed their belongings, are you ready for this, in coffins. And they'd pack their coffin up and they'd seal it tight. They'd get on whatever ship and they would head to whatever place they were going to. And then they would drag their coffin to the people group that they were trying to reach for Jesus Christ. There was one guy named A.W. Milne. And he was sent to uh, some uh, headhunters, and I'm going to say this wrong, in New Hebrides. Now, we'd sent other missionaries there before. And every time we sent a missionary to this little tribe of headhunters, they killed them. Every single time. So there's a long list of martyrs, people, missionaries who have gone with their coffins. And as soon as they got there, they were killed, put in their coffins, and put down into the ground. But for some reason, when Milne showed up and shared Jesus with these people, when he got to live around them, live among them, they didn't kill him. And he learned their language, and he was able to explain to them how God was for them. How he'd send his son to die on a cross and rose again from the dead. And how he wanted to give them greater life and be forgiven for every one of their sins. And that whole tribe of headhunters gave their life over to Jesus Christ. He lived among them for 35 years. And then he died. And that coffin that he had dragged with him on that very first day was the coffin that they put his body in. They put him six feet down, and they put an epitaph on his tombstone. This is what it said. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Where do we ever get the idea that God wants to send us to safe, easy places? That we won't face hardships and troubles and disappointment? That life won't turn out the way that we said or thought that it would? Didn't Jesus say, in this world you will have trouble? But you take heart, Jesus said. For I've overcome the world. Here, here's been my thinking all week. What, what if we had 10,000 Jeremiah's? Oh, there's much more people than 10,000 watching over the course of a week to this service. But what if just 10,000 said, you know what, whatever God wants. Whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, wherever he wants me to go, whatever he wants me to say, no matter what, hardship, trials, suffering, whatever, I just want to be faithful to him. Because whatever I face on this earth is light and momentary troubles compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. I'm going to heaven and no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things he has in store for me. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. Now why in the world would we have this attitude? Because some of you are like, you cray cray right there, Todd. I ain't doing that. That nut right there ain't doing that. Why would I encourage you to do it? Because Jesus did it for you. Let's never forget that Jesus had the most difficult assignment of all. They took him and they beat him. They ripped out his beard. They shoved him to the ground. But he got back up. They tried him. They spit on him. They whipped him. Whipped him so badly that when it came time for him to carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, he didn't have the strength to carry it, and he fell down. 
but he got back up again. He laid down on his cross. And they drove in nails into his hands and into his feet. And for six hours one Friday, he hung there, dying for the sins of all mankind. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. And then they took him down. And they laid him down into a grave. And then they rolled a stone in front of the grave that was so big and so large that 40 men couldn't move it. They put a Roman seal on it. But three days later, he got back up again. Friends, let's get back up. Let's have some defiant faith. Come on, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. Don't let the spiral get you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Get back up for the one who got back up for you. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, you're faithful and you're good. Your love endures forever. Your mercies are new every single morning. And in this we have our hope. Our hope is not in what's going on in our world. It's not on a vaccine. It's not on a virus. It's not on a job. It's not on any of this stuff. Our hope is in you. God, help us to keep getting up. Keep showing up. To keep lighting up and being faithful to you. Lord, may it be said of us that there was just no quit in us. Lord, I pray for people who are just discouraged. And they're depressed. And their whole world has fallen out from under them. God, I pray that you would strengthen them. That you would lift them up. That you would overwhelm them with your presence. And you would carry them through. Lord, they just feel like all the odds are against them. But I know, Lord, that you can redeem it. I know that you can bring beauty out of ashes. That you can bring good out of the bad. Oh, God, may we fix our eyes on you. And may we find strength in doing so. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.